I want to read to you from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. Often when we reflect on our faith, we think about it and speak about it in terms of relationship. Hang on. Sorry. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? <laughs> we think about our faith in terms of relationship, and that's good on, on what level. We cry out, Abba, Father, because we have been adopted into the family of God. He is our Father. Christ is the firstborn among many. His Spirit works within each and every one of us his brothers and sisters, his co-heirs individually. And if you are in Christ, your faith is indeed a personal relationship with God. And man, that is brilliant and extraordinary beyond imagination, and you should treasure it. But if we were to reflect on Scripture as a whole, I think we might find that the predominant vision of our hope is that of a kingdom and a king. A king is promised who will rescue his people so that they would become citizens in a new and better kingdom. A king is coming who will protect his people from a great enemy. A king is coming who will fight for and win peace and rest for his people forever and ever. This kingdom vision is all over the Scriptures. But the notion of a kingdom and a king is actually a bit foreign to us, so I'm afraid we neglect it on occasion. The problem, though, is that a whole lot of the Old Testament's richest passages look forward to the coming kingdom with dramatic imagery, with important imagery. And without those images, it's impossible to rightly understand Jesus. This is why many of the more ridiculous caricatures of Jesus exist, I think, because they don't account for the biblical vision of Jesus as king. Like, Jesus is my homeboy. No, he isn't your homeboy, Jesus is your king. And you bow before a king. And you honor a king. And while your king may treasure you and serve alongside of you, you ought never call him homeboy. It's a silly example, I'll admit. But you see what's happened there. The vision of Christ as brother has been embraced without the very real and very important vision of Christ as king. 
I had uh, a roommate in college who used to embrace the freedom that he had in Christ. And, um, and he had this really radical interpretation of the Psalms. And so he would, when he was angry with God, he would uh, shout in prayer and curse God, use curse words toward God because he believed that this was his freedom in Christ. And I just remember asking him, this is your king. The kingdom of God is the theological center of the scriptures. It's the driving vision of the Bible. And it's something that you need to take seriously. Everything we read about David from this point forward must be informed by that vision. David is king. And as king, he has the right and the obligation to protect his people and to defeat his enemies. And as David exercises that right, and as he fulfills that obligation, he foreshadows the coming Christ who will vanquish his enemies and who will protect his people and who will reign over that people forever and ever. And as we begin to reflect on Christ as king, characteristics might come to mind. Characteristics that may not naturally rise to the surface otherwise. Christ, like David, is valiant. Valiant isn't a word that comes up so often. Christ is victor and Lord. Christ rises with shouts of zeal, fervent to protect His people. Christ, like David, is mighty. And Christ, like David is unstoppable. In His mission, in His fight for the coming kingdom, Christ is unstoppable. Amen? Amen. This passage that we're about to read is about the unstoppability of God's anointed. David, just like Jesus, is faced with great treachery. His enemies seek His life and they attempt to orchestrate His destruction. Yet God's anointed is unstoppable and He will rise despite their schemes. It is perhaps among the most important shadows in Samuel. So let's get to it. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 18.10. 1 Samuel 18.10. Hold up your Bibles when you get there. Destin, you were already holding up your Bible. I really appreciate that. (laughs) Read along with me. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Now, let's remember for a moment what's just happened. From the moment that the Spirit fell upon David... Everything that he does, everything that he says is blessed by God. And his reputation begins to spread throughout Israel. So much so that he's called to serve 
in the court of the king. But Saul's story is actually the inverse of David's. When the Spirit of God rushed upon David, he abandoned Saul. And in his absence was only torment. He is cursed in all that he does, whereas David is blessed. He is broken and disturbed, whereas David is victorious. So Saul, desperate to cling to his crumbling kingdom, schemes relentlessly to keep hold of it. Because he's terrified. So when a giant challenges the ranks of Israel, Saul cowers in his royal tent and the armies cower with him. But not David, not God's anointed This shepherd boy rushes towards death bold as a lion. He rises with shouts of God's might and he strikes down the enemy of God's people. See, David's journey and Saul's journey are fundamentally related, though they walk in two different directions. As Saul descends into panic and paranoia and murderous rage, David is ever more valiant, ever more humble, ever more victorious. And that's where we left off last week. With that disturbing image of Saul trying to pin David against the wall with his spear, not once but twice. And reread the words that follow. Saul Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Interesting. Okay, step back for a moment and reflect on the scene. Saul, who is the king of Israel, seated on a throne, surrounded by servants, literally the most powerful man in the kingdom, Saul has just picked up a weapon and attempted not only to kill David, but to pin his dying body against the wall with the spear. And man, that's violent and terrible. And I think as a reader, you'd expect David to be afraid at this moment, right? You know, the kid who's dodging the spear of the most powerful man in Israel. But the Spirit of God had rushed upon David and remained with him. So he is not afraid. Saul, ironically, is the one who's afraid because the Lord had left him. This, in a way, is quite a tragic moment in this story. Because what's dawned upon Saul at this moment is that thing that would have kept the kingdom in his hands. Saul lost the kingdom because he forgot God and because he rejected God. God. Saul lost the kingdom because he forgot that God's might and God's blessing and God's mercy was the only variable that mattered. And now he's cursed. And now he's lost the kingdom. And now he's condemned to misery. And at this dark moment, he's afraid because the Lord had left him. And isn't that what sin is like? 
One day, every knee will bow to our King. Most, though, will bow wearing a grief beyond imagining. Because they will know just then that all their lives they had fought the one who could relieve their torment. And I can't imagine, I cannot imagine the fear. And I cannot imagine the sorrow. And I cannot think of anything more tragic than that. Please. Please, Jesus is your only hope. Turn to Him and ask Him to rescue you from your sin. So Saul, you see, is desperate. All that he has left is his crumbling kingdom. And Saul sees David's unstoppable victory in every setting. And he sees how David has won the people's hearts. And he sees the kingdom slipping away. So he begins to scheme. Keep reading. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. That means he went to war. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. I think Saul realized that the first outburst of murderous rage was too obvious. Too much, too quickly. Saul realized his error in judgment almost immediately because he knew how much the people adored David. And so to kill him publicly, to spear him against a wall in his court would be political suicide. So Saul from this moment begins to attempt to stifle the life of David quietly, discreetly, indirectly. And when the king wanted to stifle the life of an innocent soldier, the king sent that soldier to the front lines because that's where soldiers go to die. Now, I think it's important at this point to stop and recognize that years from now, David will behave in precisely the same manner. Remember, David is not Jesus. And David yet fights sin. And when David saw what he wanted, he was willing to murder for it. And that's what sin's like. When you trade creation for Creator, you will murder to have what you want. No matter how honorable you seem or how spotless is your track record. So Saul sends David off to the battlefields hoping that the war will claim his life. And this second attempt on his life backfires erratically because not only does David survive, he flourishes. He leads the armies of Israel to victory at every opportunity and his reputation, which is already bolstered by historic victory over the giant Goliath, his reputation is now regularly a topic of conversation throughout Israel. And that's a big deal. Because the law of Moses 
which was passed down to every tribe of Israel, says that a scepter will rise from the tribe of Judah. After this sermon uh, last week, Dustin uh, came up to me and he said, you know how uh, Saul was asking about David's father? He said, I wonder if he was asking partly to see if he was from Judah, because that's where the scepter will rise from. And I thought, you're preaching next week. (laughs) Every son and daughter of Israel must have heard that prophecy. And so when a young shepherd boy from Judah is anointed by the prophet, overcomes Israel's great enemy, and leads Israel's armies to victory, the people start to make connections. And whereas Saul's fear might have once seemed like a bent towards paranoia, at this point Saul rightly suspects that he was losing the kingdom. But note this, his schemes against the coming kingdom are a primary ingredient in the ascension of the coming king. It's the definition of irony. All that Saul does to work against David actually bolsters his fame and his victories. In a word, David is unstoppable. Despite Saul's attempts on his life, despite Saul's schemes to ruin him, David rises because the true king is coming. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The Lord will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. If you step back to reflect on Saul's desperation, you'll see that he's fighting feverishly against the coming king. He's desperately attempting to ruin him, to defeat him, to cling to what remains of his throne. And all of his efforts systematically fail. Saul is struck with fear and awe because the Lord has set his king in Zion and all of his raging is in vain. Keep reading. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merib, for I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at that time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel the Mahalathite for a wife. You may remember that technically David had already won the hand of Saul's firstborn. Merib was promised to the victor over Goliath. Riches and freedom and the daughter of Saul's firstborn were David's rightful claim after defeating Goliath. Yet here Saul adds additional conditions 
on the promise that he had made. He says, here is my elder daughter, elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Now, taken alone, that may seem merely like the commendation of a future father-in-law. But we've just read that Saul's campaigning against David and that he's working to ruin him. And he's hoping that the Philistines will stifle his life. Now, on paper, that's not a bad strategy. Statistically, you aren't likely to survive many battles in a war of hand-to-hand combatants. Saul knows this because he's always conscripting young men of Israel to replace the dead soldiers of Israel. And so Saul believes that if only he continues to send David out to war, then eventually he won't be a problem any longer. And that's what he's communicating here. Here, David, take my firstborn on this condition that you fight valiantly on the front lines. And at this point, you might expect David to take the hand of Saul's firstborn daughter. But that isn't what happens. David says, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? So we get a glimpse here of David's background, and it isn't pretty. You may remember that David's great-grandmother was Ruth, a Moabite. She was from Moab, the nation of idols, the enemy of God's people. And you may remember that the law forbade the sons of Israel to marry the daughters of the nations. To do so was to step outside of the covenant. Now, you and I may understand that God's work to rescue Ruth was a dramatic display of grace. And you and I may may understand that God's work to establish the line of David through the faith of a poor sojourner widow was an excellent display of mercy. You and I may know that the redemption of Ruth was a shadow of the work of Christ. But... To the families of Bethlehem, David's line was corrupted by the blood of the nations. And that was something to be ashamed of. David's family wasn't powerful, and they weren't respected, and they weren't wealthy. Now, you may think that I'm reading into this and that David's merely being modest. But as we continue to read, I want you to notice something. Saul attempts three times to get David to marry one of his daughters. And the only time that David takes up the offer is when Saul replaces the bride price with an act of valor. It's because he's broke. He's a poor shepherd from a a family of poor shepherds. He doesn't have the bride price to marry the daughter of the king. So David humbly refuses the king's firstborn daughter and Saul gives her to another man. Keep reading. Now, Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare to him for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, 
You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words into the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servant told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. So some time passes after Merib is given to another man. And in the course of events, Saul's daughter Merib, or Saul's daughter Michal falls in love with David. And Saul notices her affection and he rejoices. On what grounds? Listen to his words. Let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. See, Saul recognizes another opportunity to destroy his rival. And it's an attack on two fronts. First, she will be a snare for him. And then second, the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Okay, so the second is fairly straightforward. So let's deal with that first. Saul had decided that the best way to take David's life was by the hands of his greatest enemies, the Philistines. And so what we've seen is that Saul sends David to battle constantly, but it is not working. Every moment David spends on the battlefield is another victory, and the people of Israel are rallying behind him. So Saul needs a way to rouse the Philistines against David as an individual, against him personally. He wants the Philistines to seek his life particularly. So he's decided that the most efficient way to do so was to make David a royal figure. To give him some distant right to the throne. And as Saul continues to send David out on the front lines, and as the Philistines begin to realize that this is the king's very own son-in-law, they'll rise up to destroy him. That's the strategy. But that isn't nearly as manipulative as Saul's primary reason to marry off his daughter to his rival. Saul rejoices at the opportunity because, quote, she will be a snare for him. And that statement is a direct reference to the law. Let me read you something from Deuteronomy 7. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eye shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods. For that would be a snare to you. You shall not serve other gods, for they would be a snare to you. Now we'll see... Not long from now, that Michal is an idol worshiper. 
And Saul knows this. And as Saul seeks to ruin his rival, he seeks to do so not only physically, but spiritually. You see, Saul remembers why he's lost the kingdom. And why did he do so? Because he turned away from God. Because he broke the covenant. So as Saul schemes against David, upon whom the Spirit rushes daily, he's got a firm grasp on how to orchestrate his destruction. God is the reason he's victorious. The Spirit of the Lord is who is working powerfully within him. So perhaps if I can seduce him to turn away from God, to turn toward idols instead of the one true God, he too will be rejected. Idolatry. Saul wants to ruin the anointed by seducing him to idolatry. By stealing his worship away from the true God of Israel. The anointed is hard at work to establish the coming kingdom. And his great enemy tempts him to worship another. Does that remind you of anything? Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Trace the shadow to the coming king of Israel. Just like David is tempted to worship another, so Jesus is tempted to worship another. But the coming king of Israel is unstoppable. This, I think, is my favorite part of the story, even though perhaps it's a bit awkward. Saul demands a bride price of 104 skins of the Philistines. And he rejoices in his heart because he's thinking of the second part of that text. The text that we just read from Deuteronomy. He's thinking of the second part, but he seems to have forgotten the first one. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. When Saul sends David on a mission to destroy the enemy of God's people, he doesn't realize that he's sending the anointed of God to fulfill the law, not to violate it. He believes that the idols of the nations will be a snare to him. But this is the anointed. This is the true king of Israel. A man after God's own heart who fulfills the law by the power of the Spirit. And he has come to consume the enemies of God's people and to free God's people from the snare of idolatry. Keep reading. Before the time had expired... David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. 
Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Okay, I want to pause for a moment and talk about what David's just done. Saul sent him to kill 100 Philistines. And instead, he kills 200 And I I get, I think, what you're probably thinking. How could it be good or right to murder a hundred men as a bride price? But you need to place this mission in the context of an enslaved and oppressed people. The men of Philistia had been systematically raiding Israeli villages for as long as most men David's age could remember. They mocked the people of Israel. They've crushed them. They've taken their arms. They've forced them into servitude. And when they feel like it, they burn their fields and they steal their daughters and they destroy their homes. This is a dark and oppressive enemy. And as was common in David's day, any man of the Philistines could be expected to join the army of Philistia in a battle against Israel. David's act to go into the Philistine territory and to destroy 200 men of Philistia was the right and appropriate act of the coming king of Israel who was God's instrument to protect his people and to crush his enemies. This is no different than the work of Samson, the work of Gideon, the work of Joshua. This is God's anointed, full of the Spirit, mightily crushing the enemies of God's people and ushering in an era of peace because of the Lord's extraordinary mercy. We usually skim over the most awkward part of this story, but you've got to see why it's there. David is commissioned to collect the foreskins of the fallen warriors of Philistia. Okay, so that seems super creepy and grotesquely arbitrary, right? Right? Right. Except that this is proof that none of these men are covenant keepers. None of these men are seeking hard after the Lord. None of these men are Gentile sojourners seeking the God who created land and sea. The evidence of their foreskin is evidence that they are rebels and that they are enemies and they are fighting to destroy God's people and to stifle God's work. Their uncircumcision is evidence that they're not seeking God and that they're fighting against Him. And so when David crushes them, it is an expression of hope and peace and God's sweet mercy to protect a stubborn people. And that's what I meant when I mentioned how foolish Saul was to attempt to ruin David by the snare of idolatry. Whether he knew it or not, Saul was alluding to the law, which again reads, You shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. This is a command that the people of Israel defeat their enemies so that they wouldn't become a snare to them, so that their idolatry wouldn't seduce them away from God. And the people failed 
And Saul failed. Instead, the people actually embraced the nations who became their oppressors. And they embraced the idols of the nations. The nations and the idols of the nations were indeed a snare to them. And they were hopeless outside of the covenant. Lost. But that's why God sends His anointed to rescue a people and to establish a better kingdom. The anointed fulfills the law. Rather than ensnaring him, Saul's mandate affords David an opportunity to fulfill the law. David consumed the enemies of God's people. He crushed them and he crushed their idols. And he led the men and women of Israel to faithfulness. So on every level, Saul's efforts to destroy the coming king fail. In fact, all that Saul does to undermine the ascension of David actually bolsters his reputation. Because the anointed of God, full of the Spirit of God, is unstoppable. His mission to establish the coming kingdom is unstoppable. And guys, that's just like Jesus. The authorities of Israel hated him. They schemed against him. They tried to entrap him. They sought to murder him. Satan himself tempted him to idolatry. And yet, Christ's mission to establish a better kingdom and to rescue a people for that kingdom is unstoppable. And that means that he has accomplished what he meant to accomplish in the work of his son. And that means that he will accomplish what he means to accomplish in his return. Christ is unstoppable. Our king is unstoppable. Now that means something for you and me. It means that the kingdom is coming whether or not you're a part of it. May you be a part of it. It means that God's work to secure a people for Himself is unstoppable. You can't get in its way. Your efforts to appear righteous will not make you a member of His kingdom. And your failure to be perfect cannot thwart His purpose to redeem. Because the anointed of God is unstoppable. And He gave His flesh and blood to buy His people. Those who would run to Him in repentance and follow Him wherever He would go. Those who would set their hope in His finished work. He has accomplished what He meant to. And He will accomplish what He means to. So ready yourself for the coming King. And ready yourself for the coming Kingdom. Because if anything is certain, it's that He is able and He will do it despite the raging nations. Amen? Let's take the supper together.